Hi, and welcome to Hyperfixations, the podcast where we invite various interesting people on to talk about their niche area of interest that they could just talk forever about. Here are your hosts. I'm Ali. And I'm Nigel. And today we have our guest, Steve. Steve, how are you? Good, how are you guys? I'm good, good. thank you. I'm trying to fix the uh, handle of my pop filter as we, fe- as we speak. Behind behind the scenes on Hyperfixations. <laughs> yeah, it just um, like, the actual cord just fell off, so that's not good. <laughs> ouch. Yeah. I realized uh, right before I uh, joined this uh, call, actually, that the microphone I generally use uh, to present wasn't working through uh, Discord. So I had oh, to no. quickly Lovely. dig out like my headset and be like, oh, let's try to make this work. Well, it all sounds good, good on your end anyway. Always good. Uh, Steve, tell us what you're here to talk to us about today. I'm here to talk about uh, the overarching, um, what's known as Operation Ryan. It was a a uh, KGB-led program in the Soviet Union during the 1980s, where they were attempting to forecast if there was going to be a possible uh, nuclear first strike by NATO. And it resulted in a couple actual tragedies and almost resulted in a full-fledged nuclear war. So, you know, very happy things. Yeah. Yeah. So what what drew you to this topic? Like, how did you get into, uh, like, Project Ryan specifically? So my background is I'm a uh, cultural historian. I look and I specifically focus on the Cold War. And one of the ways that I look at the Cold War is how, um, like, popular culture, how that is reflected by the what was going on in society at the time. Um, a lot of it is based off of, like, you know, like, like television shows that are you know coming about during different time periods um one of the more famous ones being the twilight zone which is it almost a direct reflection of um attitude and such going on in the united states at the time where you can just like feel like the tension of the years that it's on then one of the and then so like that's during like the 19 like 50s like early 1960s the next time that you get like such a severe mirror of like the overall feeling of the general society is during the 1980s. And what originally got me to Operation Ryan was uh, because in the background for many years when I was growing up, we always heard about this thing known as Able Archer. And it was this thing that almost caused uh, the end of the world. It almost caused a you know nuclear war to happen. But it's really only in the past uh, five years that, docu- that declassified documents about it have finally started coming out. And even um, February uh, February of last year, we finally actually got confirmation on different aspects that historians have, in both the Soviet Union, the United States, uh, Germany, and the UK, have been arguing about for many years. And so it's a very quickly evolving uh, topic. And okay. Yeah. It's, yeah, it's just the, and then when you look at like a lot of the media that was coming out at the time that this operation was going on, you're like, Oh, that's disconcerting. <laughs> that's mm. worrying. I feel like every every single thing I learn about the Cold War, outside of like you know here are the big events, you know like the Korean War and like you know the stuff that led to the fall of the Berlin Wall, which is like the very basic stuff that they cover on the curriculum here in Ireland about the Cold War. You know, um, mm-hmm. everything I learn outside of that just is like you know it's just kind of just disturbing <laughs> it really yeah. is and like one of the like one of the like hard parts about cold war history is that a lot of the cold war history that we have already written was being written 
as the Cold War is happening. And, okay. and not after the fact. Yeah, and mm. a lot of it is just bad history at this point because one, it's more journalism at that point than it is like actual like history because history is you know looking into us looking into a subject and deciding was this important was it actually important why did this happen does it actually mean anything where you know journalism journalism is more just like listing things out as they happened and very rarely trying to you know, prescribe why they happened and that's why you yeah. get all these like competing schools of thoughts is like well who is to blame for the cold war where now generally most historians is, is at least those that didn't come up during the cold war um a we, we we pretty much go it doesn't matter who started it what really mm. matters is that um every side wanted it to continue for most of the length of the cold war and it just leads to Grim. this calamity of just really stupid decisions made at the upper echelons of like every government and just, like individuals at the lowest levels going if i actually follow through with this i end the world so i'm going to not do that <laughs> yeah always a good decision to make in my opinion yeah. you it's... mentioned oh sorry no i was just you mentioned abel archer earlier on yes. and it, would you say that this is one of those instances absolutely um a lot of one of the big so so one of the big debates with ryan for there you go. Oh. one of yeah. the big um debates for many years about abel archer and and operation ryan in general was and i'll be getting into this is how close was the soviet union to actually launching a nuclear first strike during this because they thought they were about to be attacked um mm. and one of the big arguments back and forth has been no this was just soviet propaganda put out after the fact to like try to make the west feel bad about all this tension they're raising while other people have or were advancing the it doesn't matter if this is traditionally something that they did this almost happened and we should have, you know, been paying attention to this, and we should be, you know, taking these warning signs to maybe not raise tensions in certain way, and to not give indications in certain ways. And it's within the last, uh, even the last two years now, that we finally gotten the answer of one, just how close the Soviet Union was to uh, striking, because they thought they were about to be attacked, and two, just how serious. They were taking what uh, the American leadership just assumed was, you know, standard rhetoric between nations, which, you know, come to find out, no, the Americans had no idea how a lot of their words were being perceived. Okay. All right. Yeah. You Okay. For just kind of all there, like, um, for anyone who isn't really familiar with Abel Archer or like things like that, could you kind of maybe go into that a bit? Sure. Um, so Abel Archer is a was a training exercise. is also known as a Reforger at the time. That was ran every year in uh, West Germany and just in the NATO countries in general in Europe, where it was a simulated attack was what they were doing. And it okay. was a it was a military training exercise. It was designed to go through all the steps of what would happen to lead up to actually attacking. 
one of the things uh, American historians have uh, pointed out for why this, sh you know, shouldn't have uh, caused concern that it did was that this was a training exercise that was commonly done, and also that both the you know, Warsaw Pact nations and NATO commonly ran these exercises of going through every step besides the last one of being, you know, actually launching a war. You, yes, it's military you need to train for these things possibly happening. But one of the signals that the uh, that NATO was missing at the time was that the world had greatly changed from the like rough end of the 70s into the 1980s. And there was a reason why excuse me, there was a reason why the Soviet Union was starting to become concerned at least that the, that NATO wanted to bring an end to the Cold War a lot sooner than it previously had thought, and one of and the one of the major reasons why is when you go back to the Cuban Missile Crisis at the beginning of the 1960s, where that's the first time where nuclear war almost breaks out between Soviet Union and United States. Mm -hmm. In the aftermath of that, the uh, Soviet Politburo really looks at Khrushchev. At, who was the Soviet premier at the time and goes, you cannot believe you almost that you brought us that close to a war. Like that was extremely rash. We did not want that. So they replace them. It, it, it's one of many reasons why. And the people he's replaced with, one of the main things, and one of them is uh, Leonid Brezhnev, is he goes through with de-escalating tensions with the United States, and at the same time, the United States is de-escalating tensions with the Soviet Union, and it leads to a period known as detente, which was when you know the Cold War is still happening. You know, they still the Soviet Union and the United States still recognize each other's enemies. You know, Warsaw Pact nations still recognize each other's enemies, but they're not intentionally antagonizing each other at this point. This is where you mm -hmm. first start to get arms control agreements put into place. Uh, this is where you start getting your test ban treaties for uh, uh, weapons put into place. Where at the end of the 50s, going into the 1960s, Soviet Union um, explodes the largest uh, nuclear bomb of all time. Sar it's generally known as uh, Sarbama, uh, 50 uh, megaton uh, bomb, the biggest ever. United States also. Uh, launches the um, Castle Bravo test, which they accidentally make their largest detonation of all time, and it ends up <clears throat> permanently altering the face of the Earth, and leads to a still massive fallout in the area today. And so all these things are going on, and cooler heads more or less prevail of going, yeah, we have two opposed systems. We're not like going to come to an agreement on that but we can agree that if we keep on going down this route, uh, war is inevitable, and we don't want that. Now, they were perfectly okay with walking around in every other nation that wasn't the Warsaw Pact or uh, NATO at the time. Like, you know, Vietnam is still going on. You have everything going on in uh, uh, Africa. You have everything going on in South America. It's just they weren't, you know, antagonizing the powers that could actually fight back at this point. As... Or at least directly. <laughs> Yeah. As the 70s go on, though, both nations start having conservative movements grow that do not like this idea of detente. The conservative movement in the United States, of course, is what gives birth to Ronald Reagan, who is about to become a very big player in the story. 
He's a, he's a, he's an important character. He'll he'll become important later. Yeah. Um. But what's 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 funny is at least in terms of the United States is Reagan is a reaction to not just the American left but to the American. Uh, right as well, because the American right was the party of detente, because Nixon was the one that de-escalated the Cold War. Nixon, terrible person, got some very interesting statecraft done because of the fact that he you know, was a terrible person willing to do terrible things. Mm. And one of those was he you know, brings China in, in the United States, not into like in allies with each other, but normalizes relations. And of course, the, uh, China and the Soviet Union had already split from each other and no longer were you know, allies. So that's another counterweight for why we needed to escalate things because we have multiple major powers going at the same time. But the American right, especially the Reagan right, does not like this idea of de-escalating tensions because they believe it's capitulating to forces in the world that they openly call evil. The Soviet Union at the same time, also has growing uh, hardliners, uh, conservatives, uh, that came from the era of why are we being so friendly with the United States? Why are we being so friendly with NATO? Um, both systems were heading into very major issues with uh, stagnation in their economy. Um, the worldwide economy in general was uh, faltering. The petrodollar out of the uh, Middle East was starting to gain more and more uh, strength, and so the economics of the world are shifting and roughly at this you know as this is happening each side starts going we need to shift away from detente and more into open aggression this open aggression and away from detente starts under american president uh, jimmy carter who is wrongfully in some points painted as more of like a peacenik more as you know somebody that was or you know not a warmongering type of person but it was under him the United States moves away from detente. Now, a lot of this is because the president immediately afterwards is Ronald Reagan, and he openly is antagonistic towards the Soviet Union. He openly talks about what most people would say is warmongering activities. One yeah, like those... building a laser in space. Oh, <laughs> yeah, that... Oh. In his autobiography, which is a fascinating read in terms of if you need to hate read something to yourself, <laughs> he, he explains his thinking behind it's the Strategic Defense Initiative, sometimes called Star Wars, which was you know basically mm -hmm. that laser shield in space. <laughs> and he flat out says that, no, no scientist came up with it. I thought this was a good idea, and I wanted to pursue... This is, and this is the interesting about, thing about Reagan, is he frames everything towards he doesn't want uh, nuclear weapons to exist. And most historians are in agreement that Reagan truly did not want nukes. Like, he did not believe that they you know, should exist in the face of the Earth. The problem is, is the way he went about it. And that becomes very important for why... Ryan gets supercharged, but not quite there yet. Reagan okay. runs on a platform of 
for the for the presidency of the United States, he runs on a platform of open antagonization, moving specifically away from detente, increasing military spending. He is saying all the things of you know basically, at, you know hell, look at what's going on in uh, Russia and uh, Ukraine right now. Is a lot of people are convinced that uh, Putin is maneuvering towards starting a conflict with Ukraine. And a lot of that is through the words that he's using. And just taking like the words just by themselves without looking at anything else, they're very openly antagonistic towards the other systems going on in the world. And that's what Reagan is doing during this time period. He is openly antagonizing anybody that wasn't a NATO-aligned country, and sometimes even NATO-aligned countries that he felt weren't being as quote-unquote tough on communism as he wanted them to be. So is this all coming back to this domino theory of communism spreading throughout? This is the stupidest thing. So the where domino theory comes from, its uh, basis is in one, a very important uh, telegram in world history, and two, a speech that's given very shortly uh, thereafter. Uh, so in 1946, George Kennan writes what is known as the Long Telegram from uh, the uh, American Embassy in Moscow. And the reason why he writes it is uh, the Soviet Union had just pulled out of an agreement they had made about, the, um, about a monetary fund. And the State Department back in Washington, D.C. was like, why would they do this? Um, they had already given their promises they were going to join. And Kennan sends the Long Kennan writes the longest telegram in State Department history, where he basically not just goes, oh, the reasoning why the reason why the uh, Soviet Union went back on their word is because you can't trust them like they can't trust us. It's kind of how states work. But he gives his entire theory on why the Soviet Union is. And one of those uh, theories is that the Soviet Union will always seek to expand itself in order to maintain security within is one of his key points in this telegram. And one of the other key points is that uh, the Soviet Union leadership does not view cooperation with the capitalist world as even being possible. And a third major point that he brings up is that the Soviet Union, especially uh, Stalin, believes that eventually when you leave the capitalist world alone long enough, they will fight with each other. And from there, the United States starts coming up with its, you know, defense strategies of how are we going to operate in this world where we can, you know, where we are assuming these basic tenets. And that what leads to the what's known as the domino theory, where if you start letting the Soviet Union expand, then it will the Soviet Union will keep on expanding into more and more countries. It, this gets tested in Greece. Um, where the, that's where the United States uh, decides that, no, we are going to funnel tons of money into Greece so that they do not become a communist country. And from <laughs> that point on... That? Sorry, I just said one way to do it. Oh, yeah. Um, that actually becomes, for the first uh, 10 years of the Cold War, the way that the United States basically keeps countries from um, becoming sympathetic to communism is just pouring tons of money into them. Um, right. It leads to what's known as the economic miracle in West Germany. Um, all the United States uses it, that's what the point behind the Marshall Plan was. It wasn't just to rebuild uh, Europe out of some 
altruistic aspects, uh, the entire point behind the United States pouring tons of money into the rebuilding of Western Europe was to prevent people from becoming sympathetic to the Soviet Union. It's also worth mentioning that during this time, these this first 10 years of uh, like the Cold War, this 1946 to like 19 to basically to the death of Stalin uh, period, that in a lot of areas that the Soviet, uh, the Red Army had moved into towards the end of the Second World War, um, were not great places to be in terms of how they how the Soviet Union was maintaining order, especially in Germany and in Poland. They are extracting not just um, like material and money and equipment. They're also you know forcibly relocating people. Um, they are you know trying to remake these areas of the world into areas that are more sympathetic to or at least more sympathetic to not being um, completely taken over by the Soviet Union. Part of that is because uh, Stalin at the uh, end of World War II, um, he you know, basically reminds the West that they weren't fighting the same wars uh, that each were fighting at um, the gains that Stalin had made before the war he wanted to keep. And uh, the United States tries to use this against um, Stalin at this point. And that's where you get this idea of, well, that, that's great that you guys, you know, have these, you know, awesome morals. Um, millions of my own people died over the past couple of years. <laughs> um, and it leads to like, well, well, now it's the entire thing of like, oh, how was World War II won? And the you know, saying is, you know, with uh, Soviet blood, American money and British intelligence. And that's like kind of missing the point that uh, Soviet Union and the uh, West were fighting, you know, two different conflicts. The Soviet Union's conflict uh, began with the, their invading Poland and then eventually uh, ended with them um, fighting back against Germany, where on the other side, it was more always against uh, Germany. But that's you know, that's going even further back than what brings us to uh, the 1980s. Um, and then to Project Ryan, then. Yeah. So with all this as with all this as the background, the conservative movements they want to make sure that each side is not going to be the one that wins. Is the easiest way to put it. Um, mm. Is the so Soviet Union. Um, they, this is when they invade Afghanistan, um, and that is just its own bucket of, would take entire undergrad courses and grad courses to fully unravel. Mm -hmm. Um, but that is one of their first major overtures towards, uh, we are no longer, you know, taking the backseat and just letting the Cold War play out. We are now playing the Cold War out. There's some debate on if this is because of the actions the United States was uh, starting to do or if they had arrived at this point uh, independently. But for a lot of these actions, it's really hard to go like, oh, this was caused because of this, this was caused because of this, or this stance was in response to that because so many things are going on at one time. It would be <laughs> like um, going like, oh, why did you buy that ice cream cone? And trying to be like, oh, well, because like three days ago i saw a television show that mentioned ice cream it's like yeah you know maybe they had something to do with it but does it really matter at the end of the day when you are just getting an ice cream cone yeah and this is 
the world where Reagan comes in the office. Um, and he is doing things like having his Secretary of State and Secretary of Defense openly debate each other through the press on if they are willing to do what's known as a nuclear warning shot, which is, you know, the the standard of like, oh, like send a warning shot at somebody like, you know, shot across the bow. Like you're not trying to hit them. You're just letting them know that, you know, you know, they're there and you can hit them if you want. Mm. They're debating in the press doing this with a nuke. Nice. I love that. I'm just going to take a guess that that's not the same thing. No. Sorry, yeah. go ahead. No, I just, I love the fact that, like, this is with a nuclear bomb, a thing which could, you know, cause untold devastation. And they've seen it happen in Hiroshima and Nagasaki. But it's yes. also like they've gone back to the most tried and true method of American debating, which is just ripping people a new one in the press. Jesus. Seasons change, but people don't. <laughs> no. The, the, this is where I bring up uh, part of Reagan's autobiography, which places a lot of the actions that like he takes to be in his presidency. It makes me like, just go, like, I'm not sure um, if I totally believe the justifications you're making, but it's interesting nonetheless, because he writes at the you know beginning of 1981, there were some people in the Pentagon uh, who thought in terms of fighting and winning a nuclear war. To me, it was simple common sense. A nuclear war couldn't be won by either side. It must never be mm -hmm. fought. But how do we go about trying to prevent it and pulling back from this hair-trigger existence? And he then goes into his entire screed about how mutually assured, assured uh, destruction is madness because there's only one end to mutually assured destruction, and that's destruction. And the other thing that he starts going into is for, okay, so if I was this, you know, peacenik that, you know, I didn't want nuclear weapons, well, how, you know, do I get the United States to the point where we can demand something like that? And his answer is demand it through strength. As in, the United States is so powerful militarily that they can look at everybody else and go, you need to get rid of your weapons. And as soon as you get rid of your weapons, we'll get rid of ours and everything will be great. Um... I'm not saying that's the stupidest thing I've ever heard, but it is quintessentially American. You assume this role of, you know, we know better. Mm. And as Reagan is having these thoughts on, we are going to be so powerful that the Soviet Union will not be allowed to, like, even say no to us. They launch what is known as Project or Operation Ryan. And Ryan is an acronym for a Soviet phrase meaning nuclear missile attack. And its entire point was to anticipate a surprise nuclear strike using excuse me, to uh, anticipate a surprise nuclear strike using computer technology and human intelligence to basically just put a mathematical equation together and go, this equals a first strike's about to happen. We need to respond immediately. Because when it comes to these weapons, and this is one of the things that uh, Reagan points out that it's always in his mind, is that you don't have days to come up with a response. You don't even have hours to come up with a response. 
in the United States, the general thinking was you had six minutes to respond before it didn't matter what you did at that point. Uh. So this is one of the reasons why the Soviet Union's going, the United States is you know, spending more on weapons. The United States is openly you know, calling us the evil empire in the press. The United States president is intent on like building up the American arsenal. The United States isn't uh, the United States is pulling itself out of uh, arms limitation treaties because they're saying it uh, leaves them too defenseless. This should lead the, the average person to going, they might have a ill intent behind this. So I don't blame the Soviet Union for going, we need to come up with a ability to forecast if a strike is about to happen. Now, one of the other important um aspects to look at is at this time and still uh in russia but the soviet union the uh predicate they have this policy called no first use where they um by law stated that we will not be the first people to use a uh, nuclear weapon as anybody that has ever studied the history of war fighting ever <laughs> and tell you that promise means absolutely nothing <laughs> okay <laughs> um there have been multiple nations throughout histories that have said oh we we promise we won't be the first people to attack and then there's always a way around it there's always a way to tap dance around the words hell germany did it in world war ii when they created a quote-unquote attack by poland which is why they then had to attack poland in response so they could claim that they weren't the ones that uh invaded first even though looking back yeah no they, you know, mm. yes they, they, they were <laughs> yeah and one of the debates that starts spinning immediately within the kremlin is are we launching ryan as a way to actually prevent a first strike or are we looking for this excuse to strike first and as ryan goes on very quickly multiple people within the warsaw pact start to believe that absolutely um yuri andropov the head of first he first was the head of the kgb then he quickly becomes the um uh General Secretary of the Soviet Union, he's actually, they start believing he is looking for a way to start this conflict. The, so one of the first major tragedies that happens to, to Ryan is the Soviet Union shooting down uh, Korean airline flight uh, 007 because it had accidentally strayed into Soviet airspace. The reason why it did was because there was a fault in the transponder on the plane and it just was you know, flying blind and accidentally went into Soviet airspace and they shot it down right. with jets. And they, this was in September of 1983. A Soviet Union at first claims they had nothing to do with it. And then they slowly start admitting their involvement in it. And then they finally land on, oh, this is what we thought it was a spy plane. So we had to destroy it. Yeah. 
And on this plane, in addition to you know, multiple civilians, just making sure that I got the person correct. Um, so everybody, so there's 269 passengers and crew aboard that they're all killed. And one of them is a, a American uh, United States uh, representative from Georgia. He's um, elected member of uh, United States government. And when the Soviet yeah. Union finds out about this, they, the records that we have is they aren't happy because they think that this is going to be used as a pretext of war. Mm. They're also looking at, as this is going on, that NATO is building up this exercise that now known as Able Archer, where they are going to be simulating launching an attack. Now, one of the important things to uh, know is that prior to this going on, is Andropov had met with the head of the Stasi in East Germany, where he flat out said that the West wants a war, and if they want a war, I'm going to give them a war. Because the entire point is now starting to become more crystallized within the Kremlin, is that the point behind Ryan isn't just to forecast a strike, but to find the strike and to act on it immediately. Mm, yeah. Able Archer then proceeds as planned. Is most of it is what's known as notional, where it's not actual like movements going on between troops. Like they aren't actually like you know marching them uh, back and forth. They aren't actually. Uh, moving them like in the place they're doing all of it through well, at the time radio communications and saying that oh this person's moving here or this person's moving here but they are doing this to a certain extent so the Soviet Union they are as they're watching this happen they're seeing these pieces move into place and they are hearing what we now know is on their entire list of warning signs to watch out for us saying us as in the West saying all the things that turn into an attack. And if you give me a second here, I actually have that entire list of things to look out for. So there was a published a list in um, we got it in 1984, where they went through the categories of indicators and there's 256 of them that they were feeding into this algorithm to watch out for uh, watch out for an attack. Yikes. Some of the big ones is um, consultations between partners to implement an attack. Um, noticing the fact of uh, forward uh, troops to launch missiles. This happens. All, all these things about the um, layout notionally are happening during Ryan. I mean, not Ryan, during uh, Able Archer. And this is why the KGB is spinning itself up, thinking that, oh my god, this is real. Um, mm -hmm. They are looking at an increase in protection for leading U.S. politicians and government institutions. Let's not forget that the Soviet Union had just shot down an airliner with an American politician on it. Yeah. Mm -hmm. um, a, the activation of what's known as nuclear consultations of uh, NATO, which is you know basically the sharing information that you know these plans are about to happen. Um, American embassies going into lockdown, um, arrival of former U.S. presidents in Washington, frequent visits to the White House by members of the uh, by politicians and members of the military, uh, the president and the secretary of state meeting with members of the media, surprise cancellation of travel. 
things is like you keep on like going through these are all normal day-to-day -day things of just how politics operates including how the soviet union operates but they have this extensive list that all they are seeing is all these signs point to a nuclear attack is about to happen and okay as you go That's down the list, yeah they're also looking at things like oh are the code words they're using the are they you know the notional code words or are they you know the actual non-training you know no shit code code words are they activating mm. more air forces are they uh distributing uh protective equipment are they are different radio channels like seeing an increase in communication are they you know moving personnel into strategically important areas once again all things that normally happen during military training exercises but because you have a american president that is openly antagonistic and openly talking about um you know or things all the time, every chance he can get that they just that his entire point behind running for president was to end detente and was to specifically to increase tensions. That a um, airliner was just shot down. That there there's this training exercise, and what is like the best time to launch a you know first strike? Well, how about a training exercise that simulates a first strike? Wouldn't that be like the best time to do something? <laughs> yeah, and, can't see this, can't see this going wrong. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> the United States, for its part, is making a series of um, miscues that are vitally important towards giving the Soviet Union the wrong impression. Um, and about 10 years after, not 10 years, sorry, uh, seven years after a larger, um, there is a, let's put it on my computer. There is a briefing put together, or at the time, um, Bush, uh, he's the president after Reagan, and it was put together by the President's Foreign uh, Intelligence Advisory Board, and it was, at the time, the highest level of top secret you can possibly get. This thing has more code word clearances on the declassified uh, papers than I have ever seen. <laughs> um, but it, most of it got the most of it got declassified, and one of the things it specifically calls the United States out for is not paying attention to the fact that even if we thought, and we as in the United States government thought, the Soviet Union was just crying wolf about being scared over like these tensions leading to war, we should have taken a step back and gone. Are we contributing to this or are they actually just crying wolf instead of just assuming that they were saying these things of you know like the, the more you guys do this the more you know closer we get to war the you know the more you guys antagonize us the more we think uh we're going to go to war uh we're going to start you know shifting our own soldiers around to you know let you know that we're taking you seriously the americans convinced themselves at this time that no they aren't serious it's, I've never, I've never, <laughs> seen, I've never seen The Simpsons, but I feel like the, the this um, Skinner—that's his name, the principal—that one where he's like, "Am I the one who's wrong?" No, it's yeah. the children who's wrong. Yeah, and it's 
both sides are operating like under under this um, assumption that they are doing everything correctly because mm. they cannot see the other side possibly acting in any other way. They they've convinced yeah. themselves the Soviet Union has at this point at least the upper echelons of the Kremlin have convinced themselves that the Americans want war. The upper echelons of the American government have convinced themselves that there's no way the Soviet Union actually wants a war. They just know that we're saying these things because it's, it's what we do. They're just they're just playing around, look. Yeah, everyone's just in a silly, goofy mood right now. Yeah. <laughs> what's that... And, um... What's that Kissinger quote, the one where he describes war as two people who are blindfolded with clubs in a room? You know, I, 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 yeah, I know one, exactly what you're talking about. Each one is swinging, presuming the other person isn't blindfolded. Yeah. Yeah. Like, Except it's nukes. Yeah. We don't stand Henry Kissinger here, but the quote <laughs> is exceptionally valid. I think one of my favorite quotes I've ever seen regarding uh, Henry Kissinger comes from uh, Anthony Bourdain, a famous uh, chef. And he was well known for at one time hating another famous chef known as Emeril. And he eventually changed his opinion on Emeril. And an interviewer goes, oh, if you can change your opinion on Emeril, can you change your opinion on Henry Kissinger? And Anthony Bourdain's response is, Emeril didn't bomb Cambodia. <laughs> That's incredible. And it's Amazing. one of my favorite quotes of all time. Yeah. So I love this as well. Like that whole thing where they're like, especially when they're putting people up on the moon and like <laughs> the, you know, like the plaque on the moon says that they came, you know, like peacefully for all mankind. And at the same time, they're ca carpet bombing Cambodia and Laos. Oh, uh, yeah. The... The thing that that always makes me like, especially like now that like, I got in, that, that like I started really studying how what was happening in the Cold War was influencing American uh, popular culture, and like why is this always why was there this like, undertended uh, like um excuse me undercurrent of uh, tension all throughout the Cold War and like every piece of popular media there's just like there's this weird tension in it when you watch, and so. Okay, Sputnik. We all know Sputnik. And it's yeah. seen as it's a great achievement for mankind that mankind launches its first satellite in the space. We we got something in the space. Isn't it awesome? Sputnik yeah. was launched with an ICBM. It was what? the rocket that was used to send it. It was a repurposed military missile. Okay. It was, uh -huh. what, put, was what put Sputnik in the, in the space. The reason the United States collectively loses its shit over Sputnik going into space isn't just the fact that the Soviet Union put a satellite in its space, is the Soviet Union just proved how powerful their rockets were. Yeah. <laughs> if, it, if it can go into space, it can most definitely go across and bomb DC or wherever. Yeah. yeah. Like, accuracy-wise, like, like, to this day, like, there's still, like, debate over, like, how accurate we can get these things. Like, Ask Raytheon how accurate their fucking knife missiles are. But <laughs> look at Apollo and like the entire program. Yes, those are great giant rockets. <laughs> and they're they are all repurposed from rockets that a lot of those designs are then used in the intercontinental uh, ballistic missiles that are then like repurposed into weapons. 
is yes, the space race provided amazing things for mankind and also gave it all the tools that mankind could use to destroy itself many times over. Typical. And getting back to Abel Archer is a lot of these missiles and stuff that the United States is moving into place to go through the motions, the Soviet Union is sitting there going, oh my god, if this is actually going on, like, we need to preparing. We need to put ourselves in a position that we can immediately respond because, once again, the United States use six minutes as how much time you have to make a decision on if nice. war is about to happen. Oh, I, I completely forgot because of just how many things are going on with this. Other things that are going on during this time is how many times in the last five years leading up to 1983 that individual people in both the Soviet Union and the United States got a warning that a missile attack was incoming. And the person just looked at the this warning and went, there's no way. And just waited that extra, you know, couple of minutes to get confirmation. And it turned out it was just a computer glitch. Everybody <laughs> you know, knows the, you know, well, maybe not everybody, but the story of a Stanislav Petrov, where he's the, here's, he's the guy that like got the um, a warning coming from the uh, Soviet Union's computers that, oh, the Americans mm -hmm. launched a first strike. And he went, I, I don't believe that. Like, there's not enough incoming to say that it is. Yeah. He wasn't yeah. the only one. How many... How many were there? It, that I know of off the top of my head, and I this is one of those I almost on a yearly basis find out about another one that just causes me to think, Jesus fucking Christ. Um, <laughs> I know of at least five that happened between um, when Jimmy Carter was elected president and when the Cold War ends in roughly speaking 89-92. That was like, like, like five times where like that like it was near very nearly like that was it like you know like that was nearly it for us yes and one of the things in that people always forget about when it comes to when these decisions are made that we are going to like that like launch a weapon or we are going to do something is that once this chain of events starts you can't stop it by design it's not like by design like oh we don't want somebody to you know like suddenly develop a conscience it's the we have six minutes before, like, mm. we can't respond. So, like, once we get confirmation, you, you just go. Luckily, every single time that these warnings have come in, they have been at a place in this chain that you could make that decision to stop. That somebody could go, mm, I don't think so. Mm. Um, one of these actually is the uh, Jimmy Carter's um, National Security Advisor gets a call in the middle of the night that this is 1977 that there is um, 100 uh, Soviet uh, missiles inbound, um, get yourself to safety. And he basically like thinks to himself of, there's no way we would have like, there are other warning signs leading up to this. Like the Kremlin just doesn't wake up one morning and go, oh, today's the day. And so he waits, and then two minutes later, he gets a call right back from uh, the American uh, NORAD, which is the people that keep track of these things, going, oh, it's a false, false alarm. Our computer was malfunctioning. Hmm. Love that. Yeah. But it's also like, Jimmy Carr famously sent a suit to the dry cleaners with the nuclear launch codes in the pocket. 
Mm-hmm. So, like, I don't know whether he's the best president oh, to be if equipped. You, <laughs> if you want to not be able to sleep at night. Oh boy, amount... I already have enough trouble. <laughs> <laughs> the amount of times American presidents have lost their ability to command the America's nuclear arsenal is staggering. Is and, it like, these are just five that... times? Yep. Oh, so no. Oh, Carter, no. Fam- <laughs> Carter famously uh, sends his um, uh, the the codes like to to the cleaners. Now, a lot of these times that the that they lose the ability to command these, immediately starts a how do we ensure that this specific incident never happens again? Because <laughs> holy crap, we just found out about a significant flaw in our system. Let's try to fix this a little bit. Yeah. Um, Bill Clinton uh, famously um, was left the what's known as the nuclear football behind one time when he that's the briefcase, case, right? Yep. Okay. Um, he left so, it where? Um, he left. Oh, I. Oh, I actually deleted most of this story, like from my memory, because it's horrifying. Um, he basically <laughs> was, I, I believe it was on a campaign trail for something, but the person that had the nuclear football, the military officer, he was left behind. If got to load him on the plane to bring with Clint. So there was a period of time that he was like, if the worst had happened, that he would not have been able to command. The arsenal. The response to that is they now have multiples of these briefcases and multiples of these codes and stuff that are near the president at all times. So, like, even if one person yeah. goes missing, they they still have this. Um, a lot of these like instances when... they 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 wind their they wind, they end up winding their way into um like different pieces of media because it's one of those like as soon as you get over how horrifying it is, it's like how why 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 why. Like, how do we put ourselves mm. in this position as as a species? How? Whenever I think about how, sorry, Nigella. No, I just just how like how are we as a species, you know, living in constant fear of rockets which will destroy us with a bunch of uh, fancy rocks? Yeah. Um. Spoiler. Alert, this Whenever story I think about like how. Sorry. What? Spoiler alert, this story with, with Ryan does, does have a, I'm not going to say, like, very happy ending, but it has a better, less horrifying ending. An optimistic I mean, one. Yeah, I mean, we're still yeah, here. Like, so. Yeah, so fair <laughs> enough. Like, But, like, whenever I think about how, like, you know, horrifying the idea of the, like, you know, the, like, nuclear cult in general is, like, the fact that, like, we have weapons that can just, like, um kill each other. I think about the time around this time last year when the, you know, when the riots were happening yeah. in America. Mm-hmm. And my dad and I were talking about it and we were talking about Trump and how he seemed kind of like, I don't know, volatile or whatever. And I was like, sure, he's only in office for like another two weeks. Like, what can he really do in two weeks? And my dad's <laughs> like, well, like at the end of the day, he has nuclear codes. Yeah. I was like, oh, 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 Yeah. <laughs> That is one of the aspects of this entire story that has not been fixed is that it is still only one person that makes this decision. And no matter what anybody tells you about the, oh, you know, I, you know, let, you know, 
uh, the Defense Department know that if you get this order from the president to come to me first, you have had at least two secretar uh, secretaries of state or defense spin that yarn. It, it doesn't matter. That's not how it works. The system is designed for when the president of the United States says go, then missiles are launched. Because once again, yeah. get back down to you have six minutes. And that entire six minutes, it's the most horrifying aspect of it is it's not you have six minutes to save yourself you have six minutes to launch an attack back so that they can't launch more yeah it's if i'm going down you're going down with me hand in an unlovable hand <laughs> yeah and that is one of those things where when a lot of people are studying like these areas of history you suddenly become very Maybe not a pacifist, but you tend to look at people that glorify these things and want to hit them with a baseball bat a few times and go, yeah. like, yeah. you you know what you're arguing about, right? This is why I CBA with, like, people who are, like, who are into war. Like, I'm just, even looking at these politicians, they want the war to go on. I'm like, why? What's wrong with you? Yeah. The... Reagan, for his credit, um, in his autobiography, one of the things that he constantly goes over is criticizing those military generals that just say those things. Uh, I have it pulled up. Right. Is he goes, the Pentagon said at least 150 million American lives would be lost in nuclear war with the Soviet Union, even if we quote-unquote won. For Americans who survived such war, I couldn't imagine what life would be like. The planet would be so poisoned, their survivors would have no place to live. No one could win a nuclear war. He also, then he goes on to uh, the military planners, they throw around things like kill ratios and uh, just, you know, using the weapons. Oh, the weapons are only being used against other weapons. They're not being used against people. And Reagan's like, no, if we're going to talk about these things, we're going to be very blunt about them because we can't forget mm -hmm. what the actual purpose of using these things are. And yeah. In November of 1983, Yuri Andropov has convinced himself that the United States is preparing to launch a first strike under the guise of this military training exercise. One of the biggest mm. debates had been how far along did the Soviet Union get to responding, i.e. how close did we come to war? It was assumed for many years that, oh, they were, you know, just a couple steps away. That they were just, you know, waiting on the order and they would go through the preparations of mm. sending their own missiles back. We know now that the Soviet Union had missiles loaded on their firing devices, on planes, and in their silos, waiting for the word to go. It wasn't, and it wasn't a waiting on the word as in like, oh, we give the word to, you know, is there are multiple steps when you're escalating to a conflict. Uh, the United States has, a, has had the same exact system where you go from being able to respond within 72 hours to 36 to 24, 12, 6, and immediately. We had okay. assumed for many years in the West that they were roughly between that six to 36 hour preparation mark. Yeah. They were at the immediately. As in, oh, no. if the word had, if 
Andropov had come down from the top and just said, no, go, that would have been it. World War Three would have started immediately. The missiles were loaded, ready mm -hmm. to go. It came out, that declassification came out in February of 2021. And it completely upended our understanding of this incident. If anyone needs me, I will be standing in the corner, making microwave noises for um, the foreseeable future. One of the things that saved that decision from coming down is one, there was a mole in the Soviet um, that worked for the Soviet Union that was at the Soviet Embassy that was the Soviet resident spy in the United Kingdom. Um, Oleg, uh, Oleg Gordievsky. Knew that because he was told by British that no, this is this is one thousand percent not a prelude to a first strike. Like this is just a training exercise, and he was able to convince just enough people in the Soviet Union that they were able to convince the higher echelons of you know the KGB and the Kremlin military that no, this is not about to be a first strike that happened is there was an American officer that just had that feeling that we are being a little too like cutting a little too close to the edge on making this real and what we're saying. We should probably not. We should probably like instead of saying this word, mm. use a different word. Instead of saying this word, use a different word. And he told and this was a lieutenant colonel in the American Air Force. He tells this to his supervisor. His supervisor just goes, well, what are you talking about? The Soviets, like, you know, they, they don't like they, there's no way they think that we're about to launch a first strike. But it puts just enough doubt in mm. the upper echelons of NATO to then start going, oh, and using the training code words instead of the like actual code words. You then start making it very clear that this was an exercise. And yeah. These things happening in concert in this just very tense, like 12 hour period, that prevents the Soviet Union from launching a what they would call a retaliatory strike because they had assumed one was already on its way. That's how close we got with this. It is not for another six years at the United States fully understands how close this was. The CIA, um, they published their history of this event. And it's one, it makes me laugh because one of the things that they do in it is, of all people, they blame Margaret Thatcher for some of the issues. And I <laughs> don't know why, but seeing that in there just has always made me laugh. But one of the I blame major... Margaret Thatcher. Blame yeah. Margaret Thatcher for things if you, if you can. <laughs> they even if you can do it anyway. The CIA claims, and I've never seen this evidence, and I spent a lot of my time looking into um, what the CIA claims versus what was reality. The CIA claims that they had evidence that the Soviet Union was using Margaret Thatcher to influence Ronald Reagan's thinking when it came to you know, heightening tensions. I'm never quite bought into that um i think it's an excuse i think yeah. that 
certainly the existence of Margaret Thatcher was inflammatory towards tensions in the Cold War. I don't think, though, that she had that level of sway on Reagan. Reagan had his own level of sway to begin with. Um, Reagan... Yeah. Reagan was a person that's very noted that when he made a decision that his... His, you know, people that he associated with, they turned on those decisions. And he's very open about that fact that these decisions that were being made, they were all eventually coming from him, so they had his authority behind it. Reagan, sure. what we know, and what he has admitted to, and one of the things that we will never get the full answer to is because Reagan's dementia hit too hard before he felt he had the legal authority to talk about this, um, was when did Reagan know how close the United States was to starting this war? But we have enough evidence that we can piece together from outside sources and also from Reagan's own diary entries that in the fall of 1983, this war game happens that almost caused World War III. Reagan, for the first time in his entire two, two and a half years as a president so far, finally gets a briefing from the Pentagon which states what the actual world will look like post-war. Not just like the, like, oh, like the, you know, bravado-esque, you know, like, yes, you know, we can just make this happen because we're in the United States, we survive everything, but they, like, the no shit blunt, this is what we're looking at. Yeah. He sees the movie The Day After, which is a television movie, but is, to this point, the most accurate depiction of a nuclear exchange ever uh, put through film. Um, and it is still to this day one of the highest watched television programs ever in the United States. And Reagan saw an advanced copy of it. And okay. of all other things, the other movie, another movie that comes out known as War Games, which uh, is the very influential in pop culture to begin with. Yep. And I love that film. Such a great <laughs> film. And also, a quick side note, that film actually caused the United States to change its policy on um, computer hacking and computer crimes. Because That is incredible. I Reagan love that. watches the movie. Oh, did it drop out again? No. Oh, okay. I'm hearing something. Oh, I'm sorry. Uh, Reagan watches the movie, and he's like, um, what are the chances of something like this actually happening? Like, can something like this actually happen? And he asked his advisors to find out what are the odds of this happening. Because he just like had this like voice in the back of his head being like, mm, mm. they come back to him and go, great. yeah, they, they go, actually, everything that happened in the movie, um, much worse could happen. <laughs> and, Reagan's like, oh. Yeah, Reagan was like, it was one of those moments that he's like, I did not want to be correct about this, but can we fix that now? <laughs> yeah, and what then, are the odds of this happening? Surprisingly high, sir. Yeah. And I've worked. A, you know, come up with the, uh, the Computer uh, Security Act for the United States of uh, 1984. But all these factors going together. And of course, you know, you know, War Games is about, you know, how close you know, we get to a, you know, nuclear exchange. All these things happen, and... After the fall of 1983, 
Reagan stops being a warmonger. He stops saying those inflammatory things in public that are that are like leading people to think that like he's trying to escalate tensions. Like he openly at this point starts coming out with the no, I want to not limit uh nuclear arms. I want to completely reduce arms. I want us to get rid of all of our, you know, arms. I, you know, he, by the time Reagan leaves office, he is criticized by the American right for being a, um, what's known as a dove, being, being a, um, peace neck, that Reagan is, is too peaceful for the world. Uh, he, you know, doesn't, you know, have the ability to be a leader anymore. And a lot of people, me being one of them, go, yeah, because Reagan got the, ear of everything put into him in the fall of 1983 when he found out just how close he helped contribute to almost the end of the world. What you can really say, like... And it's just it's, it's so interesting like just seeing that like immediate change happen in all the rhetoric coming out of the Reagan administration that it goes from you know debating these you know nuclear warning shots in public to like oh we are going to spend the Soviet Union to oblivion that we are going to um, you know like raise our military you know just like on 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 and on and doing all these things to it stops to everything that Reagan starts doing his his speeches go to being we need to peacefully coexist with e with each other we need to find a way to like live uh, together that. Um, he he goes in front of the United Nations and talks about like what would happen if an alien from outer space came to uh, Earth. What would we do? We would have to unite with each other against an outs this outside threat. And I mean, fair enough. <laughs> sure. Okay. This also <laughs> comes up um, during a meeting that he and. Uh, Gorbachev have uh, with each other in uh, 1986, where they're talking to each other, um, and they're they're trying to negotiate a arms agreement. And Reagan, in the middle of this, they're not getting anywhere. He just stops and he looks at Gorbachev and goes, "If we are invaded by an alien, who would I love this? I love that out, he's right? bringing it up like a fucking like a hypothetical you bring up when you're drunk at a party. Yeah. <laughs> If the story comes directly from Gorbachev too. Incredible. Yeah. And you know, Reagan asked Gorbachev, like, you know, like, would you, you know, be willing to, you know, like come to our aid? It's something like that. And Gorbachev goes, Of course I would. Like, duh. <laughs> like there there are there there are bigger things than, you know, our differences. And love that for them. Besties. Gorbachev also comes to power in the Soviet Union off the heels of these arch conservatives that were trying to drive the Soviet Union towards this conflict. If you believe that is what's going on, I obviously you know do believe that the entire point behind Ryan was to find an excuse to launch a first strike. But either way, mm. Gorbachev comes to power by going, "Look what the, these people almost did to us! Like these people." stabilized our country because of why because they want to win it's not what we need right now Gorbachev has his own failures he's not a perfect person Reagan of course is so far away from being a perfect person that I don't even have enough time to go into it but that's that's the bonus episode yeah <laughs> but 
very quickly after Able Archer, Ryan starts spinning down. It exists for the rest of the existence of the Soviet Union in some way, shape, or form. They are still looking and updating ways to try to find a way to perfect this algorithm that states a first strike is about to happen. But it's not placed at the priority that it was after the middle of 1984, when not only did, you know, this first strike almost happen, but by that point, Reagan had severely tampered down on the rhetoric that he was engaging in. But we, yeah, we became one just stray thought of we can't wait another second, we need to go now, away from a group of people convincing themselves that they needed to launch an attack. And yeah, that's that story. Wow. That, I feel like like there's been a lot of emotions that I've felt doing this podcast. Mm. <laughs> and like, Object Terror has never been one of them up until now. <laughs> this has been a this has been a moment. This has been a journey. It's whatever, whatever the opposite of therapeutic is. <laughs> and, I think it kind of was. It was kind of yeah. it was interesting to like talk out all the like existential fears I've had since I found out that um, nuclear weapons exist. It's one of yeah. the things I always uh, say is that uh, popular culture is uh, society's way of snitching on itself. And when you look at as because as these things are going on, as Ryan's going on, as like this, you know, a larger situation is going on, and such, the public doesn't know these things. It, like this isn't disclosed for years. But this, thank God! Can you imagine everyone would have died of heart attacks? Like, but this tension finds its way into our popular media that the the this tension of you know like oh we are this close to a war like during like 1983 as these tensions are you know rising up the media that's coming out in the united states because that's like who i generally focus on is the united states and uh, germany uh you have things like red dawn which is about a soviet invasion you have um War games. You have the the day after is being made. That like, which the plot of the day after is that the Soviet Union and the United States have convinced themselves that a nuclear war is about to happen. So it just happens and cancel. And like the, the middle of the war gets bombed. People have to live with it. Very shortly like, after that comes out in the UK, Threads comes out, which is oh my god, yeah. If you have oh, oh god, I've heard of that one. <laughs> if you have trouble sleeping, um, don't watch that. <laughs> it is one of the most horrifying and most accurate depictions of the aftermath of a nuclear attack that's ever been put to film. And I just remember hearing about Threads. The first time I heard of it was when, over here, when the, where are the trenches of the pandemic, like, kind of end of 2020. Yeah. And someone mentioned it in, like, a group chat saying, like, this is kind of starting to feel a bit like Threads, and then I, like, we were just talking, and I was like, <laughs> Yeah, the night, like I said, the end of the fifties, nineteen sixties is you see like, very clearly just a reflection in popular culture of like all these tensions going on in the world, and then the nineteen eighties, we don't know why, but popular culture is going. There's this weird tension going on. Why do we need to pay attention to it? And we find out a decade it's later, vibes. it's oh yeah, because the world almost ended multiple times. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> 
<laughs> do you ever just want to like do what? Like in I've I don't know. Has anyone seen X Men Apocalypse? It's not a particularly good movie, but like the part <laughs> when Magneto like just shoots all the nukes up into the air and like gets rid of them. Yeah, that that scene always makes me laugh because um, that should have destroyed the world right there. Just like how like, I can he... dream. But like, yeah, it's. I think anybody that spends any serious amount of time, like, really looking into how close that we came to destruction, usually winds up on the side of, if there is a way I could snap my fingers right now to get rid of these weapons, ever existing again, I would immediately do it. Yeah. Mm. Go back in time and just kill every single person who worked on the Manhattan Project, <laughs> even was tangentially related. Sorry, Oppenheimer. Sorry, Einstein. Gotta go. gotta go. Yeah, and that's one of those things where I say, like, a lot of uh, Cold War historians that came about after the Cold War are going, this is why you can't go all the way back to the start and go, whose fault was it? Da, 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 is because somebody was eventually going to make these weapons and somebody was eventually going to be put in the position that... Mm. A lot of the things we saw play out would play out in some way, shape, or form. Maybe not exactly, but I, I wouldn't ever want to roll the dice again and go. Let's see if we can do it, you know, a different way this time. Um, we survived. We're lucky. Yeah, we we're lucky. <laughs> yeah. Let's just take that. Yeah, but like you should, you leave that. But like, sure, even with um, Oppenheimer, um, like as far as I know, like part half the reason like the Allies like you know like made that like bought, made the atomic bomb like and everything was um like because they thought that um on the other side was like they were going to do it too and like when you think about it like it's like if you've seen like you know i think it was an interview or something or like a picture of Oppenheimer, like you know like shortly after like you know the bombs were detonated he is a broken man like you know like he knows Oppenheimer is yeah. interesting because he's a very dramatic person begin with like he always like an mm. over-the-top dramatic person but absolutely <laughs> there was a moment of him being so happy that he had made this amazing thing and then the realization of what he did just paints the rest of his life yeah like i've oh, seen grim. i've seen documentaries about like talking about the trinity project and stuff like that and all the people who worked on that and the manhattan project when they talk about it, like, they can't meet your eye. Like, there's a deep, mm. like, it's so, it's sad to see, but it's also, like, good. You know, you created the nuclear bomb. You should, like, yeah, you know, if this doesn't him. bother you, you know, that's even worse. Everybody, there's nothing wrong with you, like. Everybody but Edward there's, Teller, there's, basically, yeah. Yeah, exactly. There's a Excuse deep me? shame in their face. Edward Except Teller, for Edward Teller. Uh, yeah, Edward Teller eventually, um, he creates the hydrogen bomb. Which is yeah. You know, he was like, "How do I one up this?" And he <laughs> let's do it again. Heller's response to any problem, basically from then on out, is like the, the joke is just, "Oh, nuke it." Like, yeah. <laughs> he he proposed like, "Oh, we Lovely. need to build a harbor in Alaska." Well, use a nuke. Oh, um, we should we should nuke the moon. That might be a good idea. That was one of his uh, proposed uh, ideas. Can you imagine? Can you? Oh, God. How are we still here? Uh, one of the other but ideas here's... that he had was like, oh, we are trying to get people in the space. Well, how about we use a rocket to get them up to the atmosphere and then to launch them like with enough power to achieve escape velocity, have them um, detonate, a, detonate a nuke in the <laughs> atmosphere. 
you know, like, when I get to the afterlife or whatever, like, no matter where I end up, I'm gonna find, I'm gonna track down this man and I'm gonna give him slack. Yeah, um... He's not, okay, but here's the thing. He's not wrong with the nuking the moon idea, (laughs) but for for completely different reasons. Climate scientists have run models that if we if we came to a like boiling point for climate change if we nuked the moon it would buy us about two weeks the main reason why teller was wrong though was the reason he wanted to nuke the moon was because it was the oh the soviet union uh just launched sputnik well one of the things we could do is we could detonate a nuke on the moon and uh one i'm nuking the moon it looked to be funny yeah and like oh we could learn all these things about about the about the moon now that we have a giant new crater on it and yeah of course yeah one of the things about teller is another another scientist at the time went where most people have bad ideas and they keep them to themselves teller talks about them for the next 30 years do you know that like thing from the simpsons again where he's like do you ever have a thought that you don't say yeah (laughs) yeah i feel like that's that's i feel like that's a good place to wrap it up unless you have anything else yeah, just about to say, uh, say do you guys have uh, any more questions? Because that's pretty much it for me. I think that's pretty much it, Nigel. I just, like a tangentially related fact, one of my Spotify playlists is called The Way People Who Worked on the Manhattan Project Can't Quite Meet Your Eye. <laughs> um, and the theme of all the songs is a, like, disenfranchisement from yourself, your government, or the world. Yeah, I, I don't know. I think it's an interesting one because it starts off with um, it starts off with uh, Andy Warhol by David Bowie, and then it goes into mm-hmm. "Every Planet We Reach Is Dead" by Gorillaz, uh, <laughs> and into "Just Land Fairy Tale." An interesting vibe. Yeah, I would recommend that. I request that you send this on to me. Yeah, I'll put it into the chat. <laughs> Lovely. Oh. Um. Oh. Sorry. Um, Are you going to say if, something, Steve? Oh, no. Alright, okay. if that's everything, um, Steve, where can we find you? Like Anything you want to blog or anything like that? On uh, TikTok, my uh, handle is at uh, Stahevun. It's uh, S-T-U-H-E-E-V-U-N because I thought it was funny about mm-hmm. five years ago. Um, yeah, that's where you'll find <laughs> me talking a lot about these things and um, yeah, that's it. Very cool. Nigel, where can we find you? Uh, you can mainly find me on Twitter, at Spicy Nigel, where recently uh, I've been tweeting appreciation for the people I know. But then also, uh, I had a, an extremely unhinged take, which I feel like is probably on the level of, like, Edward Teller, where it's just like, reverse Jurassic Park. <laughs> I'm going to look this up so I can live react to this tweet um, like on the podcast, but in the meantime, you can find me on Twitter at AliCat underscore. Ali spelled like Alleyway, cat spelled with a K. And you can find me on Instagram at Ali, A-L-L-Y underscore K underscore Keegan. Uh, you can find the podcast at HyperFixationsP on Twitter. Or at Hyperfixations Pod on Instagram, rate and review us wherever you get your podcasts, be it at Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or at the bottom of a wishing well, wherever. Uh, if you would like to come onto the show to discuss one of your hyperfixations, please feel free to reach out at the aforementioned social media. If you like the show, tell a friend. If you don't, no one likes a fucking narc. <laughs>
I said that in the last I... episode, like in a con- in a context, and then I was like, oh, I'll say it at the end as a funny callback. And now I'm like, I'm just gonna say this for all of the episodes. This now. is this is now our thing. Um, yeah. And that is all for this week, and I think for season two as well. Nigel, is this the yes. last episode of season two? This is the last. Yeah. Episode so of season um, two. this is all for season two. Don't worry, we will be back next week. Um, uh, Steve, it was. An absolute pleasure to have you on, even if some of the things I said during the podcast may have made it seem like I think otherwise. <laughs> that was great being on. Thank you. Goodbye, everyone. Bye. Signing off. <laughs>